Hello and welcome to What Is That, a podcast where we whisk you on a romantic journey of discovery, looking at a couple of new animals each episode that you may have never heard of, or if you have, perhaps you'll cuddle up to some new facts you've never dreamed of before. We're your hosts, Danielle and Katie, and today we are leaning into the month of love, taking the single gal approach and talking about a couple of creatures that have done away with the men in their life. Let's go, girl. These ladies are independent and thriving. Please, for the love of womankind, take it away, Danielle. All right, everyone. Strap on your hiking boots. Double check your gear in that backpack because we are off to the beautiful mountains of the American West. This reclusive gal calls several different mountain ranges home, such as the Northern Rockies, the Cascade Mountains, and my personal favorite, the Sierra Nevada Mountain Range. Although I should note, this solitary animal can be found in parts of Europe, Russia, Alaska, Canada. There's been some sightings in Michigan and Wisconsin, Utah, New Mexico, North Dakota, South Dakota. You know, it sprinkles around. (laughs) But they predominantly will be in the mountainous West, where we are currently standing. (laughs) They can romp around their vast territory, clocking in as much as 15 miles a day in their movement. The home range can vary anywhere from 100 to 600 square miles. Wow. Typically, we find this critter at higher elevations in the Alpines, but we'll come further down in elevation depending on the season. So without further ado, I'd love to introduce you my solitary recluse of an animal, the wolverine. Wolverine, snickety, snickety, snowing. We have wolverines here? We do have wolverines in North America. Huh. Isn't that amazing? Yes. But judging by the size of their territory, 100 to 600 square miles, you don't really come across them very often on your hikes yeah. along the John Muir Trail. I love the other names for it. Its scientific name is Gulo Gulo Lucas. Yes. Gulo is Latin for glutton. Ooh. (laughs) So that's also another common name. It's more seen in the European ones, the term glutton. People will also call wolverines the woods devil, the Mm -hmm. Indian devil, and the omithatsis, which, pardon my pronunciation, this is a Cree Indian word for the wolverine. A quick catch, nasty cat, and skunk bear. (laughs) It sounds like a, I don't know, like a mythological animal or something. It almost does. So with all these names to describe this elusive, mysterious creature, I think we all know and have heard of a wolverine before, but I realize I don't really know much about wolverines. You probably heard the name wolverine in movies, comics. I think some colleges might use it as their mascot. But let's break down what a wolverine actually looks like. So they can weigh anywhere from 17 to 40 pounds. And when they're standing up, they can be as tall as one and a half feet. With the tail, it measures anywhere from 30 to 44 inches long. The male will be on that larger size spectrum compared to the female. They are considered the largest living member of the mustelid family. So who else are family members of the mustelids? Well, this is going to include your weasel groups. So other famous members are badgers, weasels, martens, minks, polecats, and ferrets. 
I was thinking that they seem really heavy, that size spectrum, 17 to 40 pounds, for how for only being a foot and a half in length. Because I know I've seen badgers and they're pretty, they seem pretty big and tough, but on the larger end, they're probably only around 20 pounds. So these guys must be pretty beefcakey. They are pretty swole. They're going to stand up a little bit higher than the badgers are. They're going to be taller. And their face is like this cross between a bear and a dog. It has this very dog-like snout that's all black, these really sharp canine-like teeth. It almost looks like it's going to have like some kind of grimace underbite when you're looking at it. (laughs) And that kind of fans into like a lighter fur color on its forehead. And then its main body is going to kind of be this rusty red brown with kind of patches of black going through it. And it's going to have these massive paws with these really sharp claws at the end, which is great for digging, Mm -hmm. hunting, maybe cleaning up whatever it's trying to eat. The coat is also going to be very unique to the wolverine. I'm going to get into that in just a little bit because it helps protect the wolverine living in these harsh, cold environments, but also to its detriment at a certain point in history when humans discover them. So what does this big, ferocious wolverine eat? They mainly prey on other mammals, so rabbits, other mustelids, foxes, rodents of the area, but they're not picky when it comes to their meat. It sounds like anything that's smaller than them or that they can catch, they'll go for. (laughs) Pretty much. You're going to want to stay out of its way. No matter how many invitations you get to the family reunion from a wolverine, mustelids (laughs) do not go. They're not picky. And during the wintertime when hunting is more challenging, they usually switch over to carry-on. First time I heard carry-on, I thought they were going to bring a dead deer on board. Which is a fancy word for something that has already been killed. So carcasses like deer, elk, and caribou that maybe a mountain lion or a bear has taken down. So those are going to be a little bit bigger than what the wolverine can handle on its own, despite how ferocious of a hunter it is. (laughs) So what on earth could possibly threaten this just pure ball of angry fur that lives on its own Mm -hmm. and wants people off its lawn? (laughs) humans of course humans are considered the main predator and threat to wolverines way above potentially other bears or anything like that out there it's going to be humans and this is going to be because of hunting and conflict with ranchers in certain states in the united states like idaho montana and wyoming i believe it's still fair game to hunt these animals with minimum restrictions Back in the day, hunters would hunt wolverines for their pelts as well. That has like that kind of really thick, coarse oiliness to uh, keeps you warm and prevents water and things like that, keeps you dry. Yeah, it seems like if it's it lives up in the mountains like that, it probably has all those extra insulating layers, nice and cozy. Exactly. Wolves, bears, and mountain lions, oh my. they're also known to prey on wolverines, but I should say I don't believe they necessarily go out of their way to hunt a wolverine. It's more of the wolverine personality trait that puts itself in these positions. It's been known that a 30-pound wolverine reportedly attempted to steal a kill from a four to 500-pound black bear. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> 
So you kind of get the picture of why a wolverine might fall prey to some of these larger animals. It's because of this no crats given personality type of the wolverine. <laughs> also why they may be getting predated on by bears. <laughs> so as you can see, they think they're the biggest, baddest, meanest thing on the block. Yes. And not a lot messes with them. <laughs> now, the life cycle. The average lifespan of the wolverines only eight to ten years. Hmm. Which I don't know why I thought it'd be a little bit longer because of its stature, but maybe with that no cahoots given personality type, it just uh, <laughs> they're their own worst enemy. It's <laughs> they're the founders of YOLO. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Although often it may be as low to five to seven in the wild. In captivity, they've been recorded to live as long as fifteen to seventeen years. You mm. know where they can't cross paths with an angry bear that they're trying to steal from. The big question, though, is to ask, how do wolverines find each other to make some more wolverines when they live in such large homes? Yeah. Well, their mating period can last anywhere from May to August, and that might be when a female or a male, they might start scenting and calling, and they'll kind of find each other on the fringes of their territories. And the female will give birth to a litter of one up to five young in the Hmm. early springtime. Now, we're up in the high mountains, so early spring still means snow in a lot of these areas. So this is a nine-month gestation period. When the the female wolverine builds their dens in late February, they dig as deep as 15 feet below the snow. Oh, my gosh. It's incredible. That's deep. Very deep. And those... Big, sharp claws and those big paw pads make them relatively successful at digging this deep. So they dig so deep because they want to protect their young from predators and the cold, the harsh elements. Early spring is still really harsh up in these mountains where we are. The female nurses the young for about a year wow. until the young reaches sexual maturity. Until <laughs> she kicks them out? Exactly. <laughs> now, this is where it kind of gets interesting. Wolverines are just known as this classic solitary animal. They have these massive territories. They are quite comfortable and capable of surviving on their own. They don't need any cohort or anything like that to hunt together or protect one another, you know, unless it's mom with her babies. But it's been observed now that the male, the dad of this of these young, may periodically return to its kits to help feed them. Huh. How interesting. Which is very interesting because researchers have really just put the wolverine to the antisocial box. So to see the male has somewhat of a role in raising the young is fascinating and I think has the potential for a lot more research to be looked into and more questions to have on that. So my heard me say baby wolverines are called kits and will become independent from mom at around six months. So although they'll still sticking around her for a year They don't necessarily need to be nursing off of her, per se. They're starting to eat, and mom's starting to show them what to eat and what and how to hunt things. Mm -hmm. Mom will let them hang out in her territory until they're over a year old. But as they start getting older and creeping up to two years, she pushes them out. Mm -hmm. Like, find your own house. Get out. Conservation status of wolverines. Since wolverines need such large areas to themselves, it's easy for the territory required to support these Lone Star Rangers to become lost to human development. Hmm. 
you're starting to see more development in these mountainous regions and more land encroachment. In the early 1900s, hunting and trapping for the fur trade nearly wiped out all the wolverines in the American West. It's believed about 300 wolverines are scattered throughout the Pacific Northwest. That's it? That's it. As I mentioned, Idaho, Wyoming, Montana, trapping is still permitted. But wolverines, they've been in decline for more than 100 years. And this is primarily due to that trapping and habitat loss and ranchers, I think, having fear that the wolverines can impact their cattle in their livelihoods. From hunting the cattle? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I think, too, you know, there's a lot of uh, fear in what you don't really know or understand. All right. And certain ranching practices. So in addition to all these dangers, the animal doesn't do well when those winterized motorized recreational sports happen around it. You have snowmobiles and ski resorts and things like that. So basically, any human interaction sound, the wolverine, it's going to get stressed. It's not going to want to go in these certain areas anymore and leading into more conflict with its neighbors as they're trying to push and find and create their territories that they need. Another thing, though, that we need to discuss, which is kind of the overarching threat, is, of course, global warming in these alpine regions. This melts that deep snow wolverines depend on. They depend on it for their dens to raise their young and these safe travel corridors to get across their large territories when they are romping around in solitude by themselves. But there is some good news And this is a little excerpt from the National Wildlife Foundation. So in 2008 and 2009, one wolverine was recorded on a motion detector camera in the northern Sierra Nevada mountains. It is not believed to be part of a resident population, so it probably came from some corridor from the Rocky Mountains. Wildlife biologists were over the moon by the sighting of this lone wolverine in California because... Until then, it was very rare to see a wolverine in California. And so for a while, they thought, is this is this our one wolverine yeah. in the entire state of California? As I said, they are lone creatures in massive territories. So it can be very challenging to locate them in the wild. It sounds like they're really shy and elusive, too. If they're staying that far away from any human development, there's so much wilderness out there. I can't even imagine trying to track a wolverine. Exactly. So it's been proposed to put the wolverine under the Endangered Species Act as threatened. I think something so that we can do to help the wolverine. It does play an important role in these delicate alpine mountainous ecosystems. And they help manage populations of other creatures. And this all kind of has a role in what the web of the ecosystem there looks like. Everything from plant life to the apex predators All this kind of helps shapes and keeps these ecosystems in this kind of fine balance as they're starting to change with climate change. So some things that you can do, of course, you can just kind of educate yourself on the wolverine. And other things that we can also do is just do our part and educate others on the importance of reducing our greenhouse gas emissions. I think if we had the knowledge to read and write, we can start using that power to get some of these larger greenhouse emitters, such as certain companies and 
private jets and things like that that like to fly to these beautiful mountainous regions for their vacations, if they can kind of start taking some responsibility and understanding the impacts they have on that on that ecosystem of the wolverine. So that's just a little bit on what we can do to help the wolverine and help this lone rock star of the alpine mountains. It sounds like they need the same PR person that uh, the mountain lion got. (laughs) (laughs) They do. They absolutely do. Okay, just because you're a loner doesn't mean that you don't want a little love. No, they sound amazing, and it sounds like they're another one of our apex predators out there. Go ahead and shed some layers because... Are we we getting out of the brisk mountains of the Sierra Nevadas? Oh, yes. My animal, I've had it in my head for a while. I heard about it quite some time ago, and I've been interested in the opportunity to dig a little deeper into it. Here we go. I researched the New Mexico whiptail lizard. Ooh, I have a soft spot for the lizards. Yeah. So her scientific name is... Aspidocellus neomexicanus. Wow. Proper butchering right there, I'm sure. Um, I feel like we're alluding to something here. It's amazing that where we are going and where this whiptail lizard lives, it's in its scientific name. Yes. (laughs) Is this an indicator that we can't find this thing anywhere else? It's They don't have a very big range. Let's uh, get a picture of what we're looking at here. She's, okay. she's not she's not the most unique looking lizard. She is very gorgeous to me. She's less than a <laughs> foot long, head to tail, with seven yellow stripes running down her thin, dark brown, almost black body. Sometimes there's lines of small pale spots running parallel to the stripes. As youngsters, their tails are a bright teal color that slowly fades to the mature, sophisticated dark brown and yellow of the adults. And they have pale undersides and, again, a throat color from pale to bright teal. They're lizards, essentially. So what's so special about them, you might wonder? Well, every single New Mexico whiptail is a female. What? Yep. These plain Janes are all ladies? Yep. Every last one of them is female. This species was created, this is important for later, so listen close, by the hybridization of the western whiptail and the little striped whiptail species. Now, though, they continue the line by what's called parthenogenic reproduction. What does that mean? It means no male required. These fine females get together, perform mating activities, then lay one to four unfertilized eggs that eight weeks later hatch into all females. Interestingly, only the females that engage in the mating behavior reproduce. I also thought it was interesting that their clutches were so small, only one to four eggs. Wow. Um, Yeah, I don't know why. I just figured they would have big spawns or something like a giant cluster of froggy eggs. I'll bobbing in the water. (laughs) Okay, so to recap, female on female mating activities produce clutches that hatch into more females. It's a ladies' world out here, giving them the nickname lesbian lizards, which I thought was neat as it highlights homosexuality in nature. I like the alliteration. I know, right? And you know, when it comes down to it, there ain't nothing more natural than nature, right? So as you may have inferred, 
You can find these little ladies in the southwestern United States. They have kind of a funny oblong-looking range in part of New Mexico, Arizona, and down into Chihuahua, Mexico, was mentioned specifically mm, a bunch of times. Interesting. Which I rather enjoyed. Yeah, so definitely glad I brought my my hat. Yes, on yeah. This sunny trip. Leave those layers behind. No snow jackets required. One of the cool things about these lizards is their versatility and habitat, actually, because the hybridization of one lizard found in the desert and one found in the grasslands, they can live successfully in shrublands or rocky desert areas as they may find themselves. They live their quick three years as carnivores, specifically insectivores, chasing down ants, termites, moths, grasshoppers, beetles, things that are smaller than them, right? <laughs> They're using their speedy movements. They're able to avoid predators by skirting under rocks and hunkering in small crevices. In fact, they can move up to 15 miles per hour. What? I know. I'm impressed too. That is a quick little lady right there. Right? I know. My first thought was, I don't know about you, but when I hit 6.5 miles per hour on the treadmill, I feel like I'm sprinting in the Olympic 100-yard dash, okay? (laughs) (laughs) Apparently... The whiptails are one of those lizard groups known for running upright on their hind legs. I always find that so fascinating when lizards do that. And it makes sense now knowing how quickly they can skedaddle across the rocks. Before I get into their conservation status, I want to circle back around to their breeding strategy. Typically, when animals reproduce asexually, the offspring are receiving one batch of chromosomes, and are genetically identical to the mother. Normally, when animals reproduce sexually, it allows the jumble of both parents' chromosomes to create more unique offspring, even if just in small ways. And this affords the species greater protection from disease events, as even if some of them die off, others with that slightly different immune system are able to fight and survive and carry on their quote-unquote stronger genome to the next generations. These lady lizards should be incredibly vulnerable and technically on watch for extermination at any point. At least that's what I thought. Yeah. But their IUCN status is least concern. How is that possible? Well, these lizards have one more trick up their sleeves that make them such an amazing and unique animal. They're magicians. <laughs> because of the hybridization event that created the species to begin with, two different lizard species producing an all-female race all their own, when the New Mexico whiptail girls create their eggs, they are able to give them not one, but two sets of chromosomes, sending oh. their eggs into an unheard of asexual meiosis producing the equivalent of heterozygotic offspring. They get all of the protections of a sexually reproducing species all in one single parent. They beat the system. That's incredible. I know. So overall, I am so impressed by these unassuming little striped lizards looking like so many other species, but with secrets in their stripes, making them so special and so worth studying and conserving. So that's the New Mexico whiptail, I just want to throw out there that when I was researching this, the state of New Mexico has this state uh, website that lists all of their state stuff. You know, there's like the lizard the, or the reptile, the bird, whatever. The flower. They also have a state cookie. What? They have a state folklorist. What? They have all sorts of stuff. I highly encourage visiting this website. 
I had a ball. I was way distracted on there for way too long. It was so much fun. <laughs> Do you remember what the cookie was? I don't. I don't remember anything. I just absorbed way too much information at once. Well, sounds like we all need to go to that website now. Yeah, we've got to bake some cookies. Mm-hmm. Tell some folk stories. Mm-hmm. That is such a fascinating lizard. I, I mean, know. what what a bizarre lineage to get to where it is. Right. And the fact that it can still reproduce mm-hmm. size, despite it all being ladies. I didn't know that was possible. Like, I don't know, whenever I hear about that kind of stuff, you always imagine it's like some kind of hermaphrodite situation. Mm-hmm. You might see like in fish or whatever. But this is not that at all. Right. And just the way they're able to put both sets of those chromosomes together to make unique little offspring. It's amazing. They're amazing. Fascinating. Mm -hmm. This was inspiring for my me, myself, and I time. Yes. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you spread the love to yourself and your loved ones around you. Join us next time when we chatter about a couple of animals that just can't keep their calls to themselves. What is that? Is a podcast, the brainchild of Danielle, championed along strongly by Katie. The podcast is edited by me and Naveed, who has been adding those punchy noise effects for glitter and glam. Naveed is also the creator of the intro theme and is our producer. If you just can't get enough or would like some more visual context for what we talk about here, please visit us on Instagram at what is that, a podcast where we post all the photos of the unique and interesting characters and critters we talk about. And as always, thank you to our faithful listeners that have been here from the beginning and the freshies just starting to dip their toes into our weird world of wildlife. We are certainly always enjoying ourselves and learning and loving new creatures. And we hope you take away a weird fact or two to dish out at your next get together or gala as well. Bye-bye.